Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Dispatches from the Front. This is episode number 13, and Tom's here with me again, as usual. How are you, Tom? Doing wonderfully. I can't wait to talk. We're just going to talk the entire hour about Sergeant Major Plumley. Pretty much. You, you know, and the, the actual irony is, just before <laughs> we clicked record, we were talking about the weather where we were respectively so that's uh, that's that's kind of a funny thing <laughs> it truly is it truly is so folks uh, welcome back to dispatches from the front uh formerly a band of brothers podcast formerly only a band of brothers podcast uh and now tom and i are doing whatever the hell we want um with some other great war movies and such um and and talking about some really terrific stories that are out there we are covering on this episode we were soldiers uh which is a film adaptation of we were soldiers once and young and uh yeah so we're we'll we'll jump into that in a moment but uh yeah so it's been a little while since we recorded uh our last episode was black hawk down and then uh i don't know there was like scheduling stuff it's uh what is it it's march 10th right now so you know, it's funny. We we discussed doing this episode probably before we even recorded Black Hawk Down or somewhere in there. I didn't realize that this movie actually came out in theaters a couple months after Black Hawk Down. I totally forgot about that. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah it really is. It, it really is. Uh, it, it actually it released in what March, I think, of 2002. So, yeah, and, and Black Hawk Down released in uh, wide release in, in January. So the screenplay for this was written by Randall Wallace, uh, who's noted prior to this for writing Pearl Harbor and Braveheart. Um, and, and there, of course, we see the connection, the, the Mel Gibson connection uh, with, with, uh, with Braveheart. And uh, this was, as I said, based on a book called We Were Soldiers Once and Young, uh, which was written by Lieutenant, Ge- Lieutenant General Harold Moore and Joseph Galloway. Uh, these are two individuals who we're going to talk about quite a bit during this because uh, they were there. This was basically a, a biographical piece written by the two of them. Of course, Lieutenant General Moore was not a lieutenant general at the time. He was a lieutenant colonel. Uh, and Joseph Galloway was the reporter, uh, the war correspondent who was uh, in the middle of this story. So... It was also directed by Randall Wallace, uh, and and he really did not have much directing cred behind him when he jumped into this. Man in the Iron Mask is really the only significant prior directing credit that he had. And while it's been a while since I've seen Man in the Iron Mask, it was, from what I recall, a pretty decent movie. But this is a a tough movie to jump into as a, a new director and i thought the directing on it was incredible i mean there was a lot of stuff going on particularly in the heat of this where basically everyone is surrounded and i mean there's a lot of camera work there's a lot of broad shots there's a lot of close-ups you have the aerial stuff you it, it was just like crazy directing um really good i thought yeah when you think about it we'll talk a little more about this as we we get into the plot but as opposed to say, uh, you know, another like Saving Private Ryan, good example. Tom Hanks is in charge of a squad of men, and they're, you know, that's that's one challenge to direct in terms of how a squad operates in battle. You see that play out toward the end of the movie with that that final showdown. But here, he's in charge of a 
a battalion. So you've got a lot of men. I mean, you, you interact with a lot of characters in this movie. Yeah. Conveying that in a logical way that makes sense for folks that are watching is a real challenge. Because this was a dynamic battlefield. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, a uh, superhero movie of types where you've got all these moving pieces and you've got a make sure that it all fits together coherently so that the story comes across right yeah yeah you know really capture things well especially when i I mean in a jungle so in a jungle unless you're doing like a really really broad shot you're not able to get a lot of detail unless you're close up because you've got all that foliage and stuff and they really had to show kind of that sense of once you're in the jungle you can't see 10 feet in front of you because there is so much of it. And so there was a lot of that that was captured and you, you had uh, the the nighttime stuff, you had the stuff in combat and which was crazy. And like almost going into like a a first person shaky cam kind of thing that like in the middle of some of these combat scenes where Practically, the, the, the cameras are perched on the shoulder of somebody as there's enemy fire coming at them and they don't initially even know where the hell it's coming from. And there's yelling and, and, and you know, soldiers to the left and right of them are getting cut down and there's all there's explosions and all sorts of shit going on. They just really captured that chaos and confusion and all that. And it was just it was amazing. They really did an amazing job with, with the direction. So, uh, you know, g- kudos to Wallace as uh, in, in, so early in his directing career for putting together a movie that was that was directed so well. So I'm going to propose something to you on the fly here, Tom. Uh, usually you read the plot summary, but but given that um, I did the plot summary and you did the historical stuff, which is is kind of since both of us like and did, i guess we did this like right before we recorded so how about i read the plot summary and you read the historical stuff does that work for you i'll accept that deal you'll you'll take it all right all right <laughs> i'll take that deal so uh and, and certainly jump in in the plot summary at, at, at any point because uh, you just watched this last night right i did okay yeah, i like watching <clears throat> i like procrastination and uh we were gonna watch the Little Mermaid sing-along version, and I said, "But wait, let me offer you something better." There's- we were soldiers. Which, by the way, before you get into the plot summary, I have a confession to make—a shameful one. I went through. I have, you know, a small Blu-ray collection, and I'm going through, and I was like, "Where is We Were Soldiers?" I know I have this movie, and it was nowhere. And I, saw, I thought, well, maybe the box got misplaced. So let me check my little. Uh, folder with all the discs in it nowhere to be found i realized i never bought this on blu-ray and it's not out on 4k so that's not even an option and so we watched um i put in the dvd of we were soldiers last night and the first thing marissa says as the even the loading like the the menu screen (laughs) is there something wrong with the player she was like it's all grainy and i was like I want to hear it. We're we're pretty spoiled by technology. I have I have a further confession to make, and that's that I pretty much went through the same hunt that you did, only to realize that I did not own this at all. Yeah, for shame. Yeah, uh, but it was like a six dollar purchase off of Amazon. 
Yeah. And so I and I, I had picked it up soon after we recorded uh, Black Hawk Down, since we knew this was the next movie coming up. And I searched around and I hunted around. And I could not find it. I'm like, crap, I apparently don't own it. Uh, so, yeah, I went on Amazon and, and ordered it and, and got it in. Um, so I do have it on, on Blu-ray. Well, you were able to see all the stubble and yeah, yeah. My my video quality like, was was uh, markedly better than yours. I mean, it's like watching it without glasses. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well have been VHS. Uh, how did we survive on VHS? I don't even know. That's that's crazy. That's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. So, oh, wait a minute. You had mentioned something that I wanted to pick up on. You said the, the Little Mermaid sing-along version. So for a second, I was thinking, wait a minute, there's a Little Mermaid sing-along version of We Were Soldiers? Oh, yeah. That's weird. Well, there should be. Like, instead of I want to be where the people are, like, I want to be where the battle is. Yeah. Like, bullets flying. I, I get that. You 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 have a, a baby girl, and and I, I guess I commend your commitment to watching war movies with her. But to go like the Little Mermaid sing along version of those war movies—that's a bit much, Tom. Yeah. Well, you know, you do what you have to do. And <laughs> there was wine involved, so at least the uh, it would have been like you know slightly drunken singing along. But for for your you daughter know, or for you, you could. Well, you put it in a sippy cup, and then that way it doesn't spill onto the carpet. Ah, uh, so, okay. Smart move. And it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. Baby yeah. goes to sleep faster. Totally. Totally. Please don't call Child Protective Services. No, no. We're, it's it's all poking fun. But but your, your, your daughter did just turn a year old. Almost. She turned nine months old, so... Which is crazy because you and I started recording before she was born, which is insane. Yeah, it doesn't. It seems like it was like a just maybe a few months ago, not not that long. I know. That's nuts. Wow, you're gonna make me more depressed than this movie left me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so admittedly, it's been um, a few weeks since I saw the movie, so it's like immediately fresh in your head. Um, I, I, it, most of it's still with me. Most of it's still with me. But if there's something in the plot summary, like some big thing that I miss here, you 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 jump in, you do your thing. All right, so uh, we were soldiers. Is a story of the first major battle of the American entry into the Vietnam War, keeping in mind that the French were fighting this for, for quite a while uh, prior to. Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore is chosen to train and lead a group of officers and enlisted, which will eventually form the 1st Cavalry Division in Vietnam. Soon after their arrival in Vietnam, Lieutenant Colonel Moore is tasked with engaging the enemy following an attack on an American base. Uh, intel is poor, to say the least. I, I will. I'll, do a little self-edit here, and I'll say Intel sucked. Uh, they basically knew nothing about troop strength, capability, none of that. I mean, they were truly, this was the first major engagement. So they were being dropped in the middle of the jungle, in a foreign territory, little, very little Intel on anything. It, it was just, just a bad situation from the get-go. I mean, even if you're a first-time watcher of this movie and you know nothing of the story, it's like, this is just bad. <laughs> there's there's no good that can possibly come of this. Uh, soon after arriving, they learn from a, uh, a captured North Vietnamese soldier that the location is actually a base for a North Vietnamese army division of about 4,000 men. Uh, and uh, talking about direction and story here, 
they periodically cut from the American troops to the North Vietnamese troops, uh, particularly to their command post for the division, which is is underground. Um, and you see like uh, this whole tunnel system that the, the North Vietnamese have and all that stuff. And uh, I mean, truly, they're like maybe just a few hundred yards away from this actual command post. And there's, you know, tunnel entrances and soldiers all around them. Uh, one particular pl uh, platoon of American soldiers gets lured away chasing a North Vietnamese scout, uh, which results in them being cut off from the rest of uh, First Cav. A lot of men in this platoon are lost, including the, the, the leader, uh, who is a young lieutenant. And those who survive overnight manage to do so with the aid of some close support artillery, illumination flares, which, of course, is, you know, really freaky that they call for a flare. The flare goes up and holy shit, there's like North Vietnamese soldiers, which are like eight feet in front of us. So then, of course, you get, you know, huge uh, but very short lived firefight as they they're just trying to survive. They also periodically cut back to, uh, I guess what's really kind of the, 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 the B storyline here, uh, which was back at home, uh, at the army base, uh, and it, it was Fort Benning, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, back to Fort Benning, which is really where this whole movie started. And, uh, so you have the, the, um, residential area on the fort where all the wives are after their, their men had left for this deployment. The Army's delivering death notifications to the wives of soldiers that were killed in this battle. Um, and this was happening very fast, and keeping in mind that this was, like, this, again, was very early on. This was, like, the first major engagement. So the death notifications were flowing fairly quickly. I mean, almost kind of real-time-ish. Not like later in the war where it's like, hey, your you know son or brother or husband died two weeks ago kind of thing. It's, it's, you know, there wasn't this huge backlog that they were dealing with. Uh, so Julia Moore, who is the wife of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Moore, she ended up taking, taking control of the situation because they're basically being delivered by the, the telegrams are being delivered by taxi. Very uncomfortable situation for everyone that the, the taxi driver was not particularly thrilled with it, but it was a job and just kind of very impersonal for the wives to be receiving, um, those notifications. So as the, the commander's wife, she took control of the situation. She asked that all the telegrams are delivered to her and, um, she wanted to personally deliver them to the widows herself. And, and, and like this movie, because of that bounces to these very different situations, both of which are very emotionally draining. Uh, they're both really, really tough. So back in Vietnam, Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Moore leads his men through the survival of wave upon wave of North Vietnamese attacks from all sides, uh, getting constantly overrun and having to, to contain their position, tons of casualties. And basically at the point when defeat seems inevitable, uh, he calls for this thing called a broken arrow, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, getting uh, immediate close support from all available aircraft, which... Uh, completely changes the tide of the battle, allowing Moore to then kind of rally his soldiers, route the North Vietnamese, and uh, and, and basically win the day, eventually evacuating all of uh, all of his soldiers. So, and, that, and that's pretty much where the movie closes out. 
And to give a little bit of historical background, they, I think this movie in particular did a good job of taking a really, really complicated subject and distilling it down. Maybe not 100% accurately, but enough that you could understand the framework of things. So rather than drop us in at the American bases, Colonel Moore is, is going to load into the helicopters. I mean, the movie would have been good enough, I think, just with that. But they give you the lead up. So uh, Tim mentioned before all this happened, you see at the beginning that the uh, French army is involved here in these central highlands. And in fact, you see the uh, the Vietnamese colonel. Well, he's a he's not a colonel at the time, but he he eventually becomes a colonel when he's at the Battle of Ai Drang. So this would be Colonel Huan. I'm probably butchering that, but he's actually involved in this battle you see against the French at the the beginning of the movie. But by the time of the film, we're in 1965 or so, uh, the majority of the rural areas of South Vietnam are under some level of Viet Cong control, Viet Cong being the guerrilla force uh, from North Vietnam. And to sort of set things up, they don't really explain this, but, you know, we, we originally get involved in Vietnam to try to prevent a communist takeover of South Vietnam. North Vietnam aligns with uh, the the uh, Chinese and and uh, what at the time was the Soviet Union, uh, we were fearful on a global scale that if South Vietnam fell, then you would have country after country and otherwise otherwise known as the domino theory fall to communist influence, and and all of a sudden you would have this massive swath of communism just sweep over Asia and potentially the rest of the world. So this is where we chose to make a, a stand. And at this point in the war, the the Viet Cong have quite a bit of influence. I mean, you, you, we could do an entire podcast about the insurgency and, and that aspect of the war and whatnot. But what we see here is, I think a lot of people imagine the VC as these uh, folks that blend in and out of civilian populations. And certainly there were a lot of those. But here, the the difference, what you see in this movie, these are regulars. So this is the Vietnam Vietnamese or Vietnam People's Army. Right. Um, these are actual uniformed soldiers, like highly trained, battle-hardened, uh, hungry to get into combat against the Americans that are uh, st- plussed up on, on this mountain that uh, Colonel Hal Moore gets sent to. At the time, so prior to I Drang, the Military Assistance Command was the U.S.'s presence. So we were, you, you hear mention at the beginning of the movie about American advisors. We didn't have a full-on combat presence there, meaning we weren't, you know, fighting the, the war for the Vietnamese, so to speak. Uh, but we had a lot of troops there. Well, around 65, General Westmoreland goes to, at the time, President Lyndon Johnson, and you see that TV clip, that actual clip of LBJ announcing a troop surge, so to speak. The commitment was actually up to 300,000 troops. Um, LBJ references an escalation from 75,000 men up to 125,000 men, which Colonel Moore's division is a part of. And just for a frame of reference, at the height of the Iraq war, so in 2007, when we surged to our largest troop uh, capacity there, we were at 166,000 troops. And the, at the height, <laughs> echo goes off in the background. <laughs> and at the height of uh, Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, 
in 2011, when we surged there, we had 100,000 troops. So you're talking a lot of men, and that's not yeah. even the, the peak level of U.S. troops. So this massive buildup actually starts in the summer of 65. The battle in the movie starts that fall. Uh, U.S., uh, the United States saw these coming engagements in the Central Highlands is a really great place to test out new tactics where uh, helicopters shuttle in infantry and then they're supported uh, by various other forces. And the movie does a fantastic job of showing more get tapped for that job with the 11th Air Assault Division as a test division. And then eventually they get switched over uh, in you know, a great scene at that uh, deployment party where they become the first cavalry division, Air Mobile, and he immediately realizes that that's Custer's division. Uh, the Battle of Idrang is actually part of a larger campaign, the Pliku cam- campaign. Uh, probably the uh, Idrang was, and and really LZ X-ray, landing zone X-ray, where this movie takes place, is one of two major air assaults. You also had landing zone Albany, which is not shown in this film, but it was a much bigger disaster for American soldiers. But as soon as the American soldiers departed, the landing zone immediately reverted back to North Vietnamese control, which you sort of see at the very end of the movie as the, the North Vietnamese kind of emerge from their tunnel network and reclaim the ground. So... Uh, you know, it's it's one of those where the definition of victory is often a little shaky, so to speak. Yeah, there's a lot of this. Um, I, I mean, obviously, a lot of this is centered on the the troops on the ground, and there's some really interesting dynamics between them and this whole concept of of air cavalry, which um, in a little bit, Tom, I. I I'm hoping you can kind of expand on for us because there's obviously some incredible benefits to it. And there's also a lot of challenges to it too. So, uh, but before we get into that, we, we are referencing, we're going to be referencing some different cast members and and there's some, some notable uh, actors and and cast members who are in this obviously. And uh, you know, first and foremost, as as we mentioned, we, we have uh, Lieutenant Colonel Moore uh, who is played by Mel Gibson he kind of highlights this whole thing, uh, along with his wife, as we mentioned, who is backing up here to find it. Madeline Stowe. Madeline Stowe, yes. That. Yes, thank you. So, <laughs> as as you mentioned uh, in our introduction, uh, Sergeant Major Plumley, uh, played by Sam Elliott, just to the key. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You know the the introduction that we get to him is fantastic as he's uh, kind of you know w- w- walking across the, um, the 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 quad, if you will, of, of Fort Benning, and you know enlisted men w- w- walking by him said, "Good morning, uh, good morning, Sergeant Major," and uh, you know, "Beautiful day, Sergeant Major," and just. The, the response is, I, I, the beautiful day one, I think, is is the best one. It's, you know, you have... How do you know what kind of damn day it <laughs> yeah. is? Yeah, you a fucking meteorologist? But <laughs> yeah. it's so perfect, because you don't know at the time. You can If you know nothing, you can look at his uniform and be like, oh, that guy's got some experience. Yeah. And then they put a fine point on it, or Colonel Moore does, in the they have this little formation in the hangar, and he's... Sergeant Plumley just looks like he's cut out of stone, and he says, 
that Plumley made all four combat jumps with the 82nd in World War II. So yeah. Sicily, Salerno, Normandy, and Holland. Yeah. Which in and of itself is incredible that he survived all that. And then he made another combat jump in Korea. And then here he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it, 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 real impressive stuff. Um, and, and, and of course, it be, because this, what, what I would probably love to do at some point is to actually jump into the biography of this guy some, uh, because it's got to be absolutely fascinating. I mean, he is uh, presumably, you know, that character is based on a real person. Uh, and I would just kind of love to see the exploits of, of this individual. And yeah, it's it just got to be damn impressive. And, and truly Sam, Sam Elliott just knocks it out of the park. Um, so we have Chris Klein, uh, who plays second Lieutenant Gahagan, you make an interesting note here, Tom, in the uh, uh, in our listing of where the hell is he these days. Uh, you know, Chris Klein did a lot of stuff uh, around this time, the early two thousands, uh, the American Pie it's movies, huge. and yeah, he was like everywhere, and then suddenly just disappeared. I I don't know. I'm gonna Google where is Chris Klein. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Carrie Russell uh, played uh, his his newlywed wife. Uh, Barry Pepper played Joe Galloway, who is the uh, war correspondent who we mentioned earlier and who was the co-author of the source material for this. A very young John Hamm, uh, fairly early in his career, played Captain Dillon. Uh, Clark Gregg, who, if you are a uh, a Marvel Universe fan, uh, you know him as uh, Agent Coulson. Uh, he played Captain Metzger. Uh, who unfortunately saw an early demise in this movie, kind of rooting for him just because I, I you know, have a proclivity for the actor and, and, and I haven't seen this movie in, in several years. And so I kind of forgot what his role was in it. And, you know, he came up and my wife and I are, met, are, are watching it and my wife says, oh, hey, yeah, there's there's Agent Coulson. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, Agent Coulson's dead. Uh, spoiler. Well, the whole thing, this whole thing is filled with spoilers, so I don't even know why I say that. Coulson can't catch a break. Yeah, I know. Coulson dies constantly. It's, it's, uh, it's a sad thing. <laughs> uh, and then Ryan Hurst, who plays Sergeant Savage. Uh, so those are, those are just some of the notables that are, that are in this uh, cast as both actors as, as well as uh, some of the uh, more notable uh, characters, if you will, in, in the film. So, yeah, Tom, tell us about this whole air cavalry thing and and what you know about it, how it came about. I mean, we're 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 not uh, we're not riding horses into battle. Yeah, so th I, obviously this is not the first time that uh, the the concept of delivering troops by air has uh, has woven its way into the military. You and I just did a podcast. Uh, like the first ten episodes of this podcast were about a unique thing called, uh, you know, paratroopers. Yeah. And uh, you see it in Saving and Private Ryan. We talk about that scene in the movie where they come upon a, a crashed glider. Uh, those being a, a, another way that, that soldiers were uh, delivered into battle. So that concept isn't new, but this uh, helicopters were in terms of their, their involvement of, uh, you know, taking the place of more vulnerable gliders and whatnot. And, the idea is if you can get a uh, a smaller craft with a carrying capacity, um, certainly a, a craft that can lift equipment in and out, say a small tank or an artillery piece or something like that, 
and it's got vertical takeoff and landing ability, and it can get in and out of relatively tight areas that would be a, l- a lot harder, if not impossible, for a glider, certainly a plane or um, you know maybe an airborne, a full-scale airborne drop would be just impractical. You know, this was the ideal next evolution of it. And so this is something that had been in involvement, in in development rather, uh, for a while. I mean, just conceptually. But here you, you see sort of the front end in terms of the, the idea that the Army was ready to take this live. And uh, they had the, the very famous UH-1 Iroquois helicopter that's like woven its way into the public psyche, uh, more famously known as the Huey. Yep. And I thought this movie does a fantastic job of, of just showing, you know, how quickly they were ready to, to launch this in. Cause you see th- there's a great shot of Colonel Moore sort of at night in his study, jotting down the, the capabilities of these helicopters and whatnot. And it's clear when he, he takes over this unit, you've got soldiers from all over the place Visually, you can look on their shoulders and see they're coming from all different divisions. I mean, you got 82nd Airborne soldiers, 2nd Infantry Division soldiers in terms of the patches. And his job is not just to bring these guys together, but but to train them on this new equipment. The concept of, of air assault, uh, you know, is actually... The, the way it's conceptualized is, you know, it's not hard to understand. But you use rotary ring rotary wing assets to deliver in typically light infantry and then you use a combination of other assets to to support that force um at the time here you, you see some limitations because they don't have say the the advantages of a, a black hawk with a heavier lift capacity or something like that or even a lot of chinooks that can carry in heavier equipment so colonel moore makes the note that they're going to be isolated. Really, all they have is artillery and close air support. But that's the idea. They, you know, It's a rapid strike force. You're going in, seizing and holding enemy territory, usually behind enemy lines, which is a point that Colonel Moore stresses to his men repeatedly that, hey, look, that the whole idea here, just like in the, in the Airborne, is that we're not going in to establish some front line where we've got a bunch of friendlies right there at our backs we're going in and we're going to be surrounded yeah yeah by the nature of it you are surrounded that's uh, that's that's kind of the tough part of it the the thing that gets me with this is what did they say in the film that they were like 40 or 45 minutes away from their base from their deployment point yeah it's like a 30 minute helicopter ride 30 minute helicopter ride that 30 minutes is a freaking lifetime when they're able to drop what a platoon at a time yeah, and he makes a point that the that first wave that they drop in are going to be isolated for about a half hour. Yeah, and so that's gotta, nuts. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it does a good job. I, it, it's very clear that he understood the stakes of things uh, and and tried to ingrain that in his men during training. And I think that's a credit to Colonel Moore's leadership that he he saw the fight that was coming, that this next next fight. Uh, Colonel Moore was not fighting, not one of these guys to fight the last war. Uh, right. Like so often is the problem. 
And so the training that you see him put his his folks through, I, the, the best scene that I can think of that sort of encapsulates his forward thinking, because this is a guy, he's not, you know, 27, 30 years old, like, you know, some younger thinker. I mean, he's been in the army a while, fought in Korea, uh, like very easily could be one of these old school thinkers that, that just doesn't wrap his mind around this new tactic. But there's that scene where they're practicing landing for the first time and, and uh, getting off the helicopter. And he's like, oh, you know, it's it's going pretty well, isn't it? And he's like, yeah, that's the problem. And he walks up to the next helicopter that lands, and it's got that gung-ho platoon leader. And he grabs him right on the chest. He says, bam, you're hit, you're down. What do you do? And he goes to the next guy, and he's like, you hesitated, you're dead. Yep. And poor Sergeant <laughs> Savage has to step up, which is a kind of a foreboding moment for the actual battle itself. Yeah, that's, truly. That's a great encapsulation of Colonel Moore. He's like, you know, it's it's not enough like, hey, we can get off the helicopter pretty quickly. That's cool. We're all ready to go. You know, this is a guy that's thinking in terms of contingency planning. Let's think yeah. about how this battle can go poorly. How how can this new tactic uh, disadvantage us? And let's think about ways to, to work around that issue. And it can go poorly right from the get-go. I mean, yes, you have the element of surprise, but likewise with the poor intel that they had, I mean, they could have touched down anywhere and been immediately overwhelmed. You know, they, they, they could have been killed as basically as this whole demonstration was as they're offloading from the helicopters uh, or, you know, helicopter shot out of the air, they could have just been slaughtered right there in that first wave. And there wouldn't be a freaking movie. I mean, that's, that's it. You know, it's all over. It, it it truly could have been that fast. I mean, there's just so many unknowns. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of unknowns in, in any battle. But in a situation like this, where you're, you're – and, you know, there, there's there's obviously a lot of parallels to, to, to paratroopers in this with them going in behind enemy lines. Um, but the paratroopers are coming in with more consistent with, – with, with a larger strength initially but then on the other side as we saw from things like band of brothers saving private ryan they can be scattered miles and miles apart from each other as well mm-hmm. so you can have one soldier who is completely isolated from everybody else small groups that are completely isolated you can drop into the middle of a, a you know in, into a middle of a marching division of of the enemy and i mean you're you're done uh so i mean there's just there's so many questions there's so many challenges with something like this and uh yeah it's really incredible but like you said lieutenant colonel moore he understood all those things and he was really trying to impart that to the men that were assigned to him who at least from what i saw in this movie and maybe tom you have a little bit more insight on this they had never done this before they were not part of an air cav unit prior this was their first exposure to it i mean he kind of in in that hangar at fort benning when he has them assembled he you know they kind of do that very dramatic introduction where we're going to ride in the battle and then amazingly on cue uh you know here comes snake shit with the helicopter which you know kind of stops for the pose and and hovers in front of the hangar and, and, and he says you know and 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 this is going to be our horse yeah. So he he introduces them to that whole concept right there. So it doesn't seem that they've ever done this before. No, this is brand new and it the um 
this is another thing the movie does a great job of that the they're, they're still a test division at this point i think the, the writing is on the wall that this is going to happen so get your men ready but these guys especially he's got a crop of brand new second lieutenants that haven't been in the army but for a, a minute along with a bunch of normal soldiers that have not been involved in a unit like this yeah and it's a monumental task normally but they've uh, you know he he sees the writing on the wall he's he knows that the, the conflict in vietnam is is ramping up and you see that and this is again a credit to wallace but um the way the movie conveys these sort of things, but they have that scene where they're training and their radio telephone operator is picking off atmospheric bounce. And you can hear the military advisors as a sort of heated battle that's going yeah. on. In Vietnam. And it scares the hell out of these guys. Oh yeah. You and know, they're, like, they're hearing some crazy shit. Yeah. And, and more is, um, you know, Moore's point is like, look, I, this is happening. We're, we're going here. This, uh, there's no getting around this. We're going to be in the middle of that. And the best thing that we can do is learn, uh, you know, and his, his approach to things is more from a, a leadership developmental standpoint, not like, Hey, we got to get uh, the, the, our sole goal here is to get good at jumping out of helicopters and being great infantrymen. It's, you've got to be the best leader that you can be by looking after the, the folks around you. So he gives that, like slightly creepy speech about um was it raging bull um yeah crazy horse excuse me crazy horse yes yes yeah but but the concept of fighting as a family and you see this consistently where he adopts this sort of father figure role in the battalion and his concept is to to engender that in in folks from top to bottom he makes the comment every man learns the job of the man above him and below him because it's uh, you know, when the shit hits the fan, so to speak, you may be forced to fill in that role. And Sergeant, you know, we'll, we'll kind of touch on this, but Sergeant Savage, uh, Ryan Hurst's character is a perfect example of that. You see it in the, the training where he has to take over and jump out of the helicopter and get all the men out. And then you see it when he has to take over that cutoff platoon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, there's, there's, there's just an incredible amount of challenges with this and, and, uh, also, I, I think something worth mentioning is that if someone has a if, if when when soldiers go into any kind of like a, a special training thing, and, and, and again, Tom, I, I think you can speak to this from from some personal experience. Some of the folks who are running this specialized training may very well be outranked by the people who are taking it. And so, you know, from the get go, Lieutenant Colonel Moore, who's obviously running this and, and, and he holds rank here, uh, he introduces a sergeant major and there are officers in the ranks here. There's lieutenants and captains. And uh, so Moore emphasizes that the sergeant major reports to him and only him. He is basically part of that, you know, training academy staff. And it doesn't matter if you have one or two bars on your shoulder uh, you're, you're, you're still going to be accountable to a Sergeant major. Yeah. And, and that's something that's very common in a lot of specialized training. Absolutely. I, a great example, United States army ranger school that trainees don't wear rank. Uh, you, you strip down. If you see, look closely at any picture of, of soldiers that, uh, have just gone through and gotten their ranger tab where they're posing with the, the tab, uh, freshly 
put on their shoulder, you're going to see a, a blank spot on the chest where the rank normally is and a blank mm-hmm. spot on the patrol cap where the ranks normally is. And that's done for a real reason. Um, and that they're not, they're far from the only army school or only, uh, military school that does that. And as a side note, I would say the person dumb enough to try to make Sergeant, like Ben Sergeant Major Plumley to their will is. Really <laughs> <in> their <own laughs> oh, I fully believe it. I fully believe it. Their own personal safety too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, hey, we're, so we're going to take a quick break. Uh, And we're going to be right back with more on We Were Soldiers. And we're back. Yeah. Uh, So, Tom, I I think now we're kind of ready to jump into the the main part of the battle itself. And you you kind of start to introduce some of that with uh, some of the, the statements and training that Moore had made to the guys about basically getting the hell off the helicopter as soon as possible and you know what are you going to do when the guy next to you or 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 when your uh, your immediate commander takes around and um so let let's let's now talk about the battle itself so they 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 go in with this flight of helicopters you know what i think we kind of need to talk a little bit about yeah. snake or <laughs> snake shit doubly named uh because uh he of his ability to fly lower than snake shit (laughs) as he puts it and his very aptly named partner in crime too tall yeah yeah too tall (laughs) you call we hole sir that's right that's right so yeah so we, we we had um the 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 flights. I, I I think that the relationship that was formed between between Moore and and Snake Shit was like really important. I mean, it was kind of this very trusting thing. They they never really worked together much. They were always separate because one's on the ground, the other's flying. But it's this. It was this very symbiotic thing. You know, Snake was obviously supporting more. He's he's delivering soldiers, and kind of this crazy thing because he knew in many cases he's delivering soldiers to their death, mm-hmm. and and literally watching soldiers get shot as he's like touching ground, and these guys are are offloading. Um, <clears throat> but also, I, I mean, a, a serious hero is he is there as like just this such obvious sitting duck i mean you put a helicopter into the middle of the jungle and something here does not belong and wounded are getting loaded into uh into his helicopters and in some cases basically against advisement you know where they're saying "Eh, well you know you're gonna have to wait for the the medical helicopters for the medevacs and he's like no just just get these guys on so we can get him the hell out of here. Uh, and of course, that whole process of loading wounded, even as for as hasty as it was, is still gruelingly slow when you're continuing to take rounds. And I mean, there were guys who were trying to support it with, with some suppressive gunfire and, and keep the enemy's heads down. But, you know, they're still taking rounds. Um, we, we, we talked about... Um, I almost called him Agent Coulson. Uh, we, we we talked about you know Clark Gregg's character and and he 
he gets loaded and and as soon as he basically sits on the deck of that helicopter uh takes round and uh, another round and and gets killed right then and there so i mean just this like insane amount of heroism that snake himself was taking on and also directing the other pilots that he was commanding uh he's a he's a major to, to, to make this happen and to really kind of keep this steady flow. And at one point they lose their LZ because it becomes overrun um, by the enemy and more ends up locating another area. And with the help of some deck cord, they blow up a bunch of trees and Hey, miraculously we have another LZ, but none of these are like secure LZs. They are absolutely hostile uh, LZs. It's, it's. And the, the movie puts a pretty fine point on it during one of his flights. Actually, a couple times. You see that one where they uh, they finish up the sort of the last flight for the night, and the blood is being just bucketed off of the the deck of the Huey with uh, with water there, and Crandall is just like shell shocked, and he looks over and he gets confronted by this other officer about flying his men into a hot LZ and whatnot, and he pulls his pistol on the guy. Oh, yeah. Like, you're, you're too chicken shit to fly into this, and you want to sit here and, like, criticize me. Uh, that was one moment that, that sort of put a fine point on it. And the other is is they're making an approach, and they see medevac birds just circling. Yeah. That won't go in because it's too hot, and so they direct the medevac birds to follow their lead in. Uh, and you made a great point. I mean, these, but for maybe a door gunner with an uh, an M60 machine gun, Crandall, too tall, the rest of them, they're not flying gunships. No. They're flying unarmed helicopters. These things, if you've ever been in a Huey or seen a Huey, they're not <clears throat> behemoths. These are not huge no. helicopters. They're not carrying heavy armor because they, they couldn't to, to maintain their flight characteristics. And so it's a, you know, a very very risky job and under normal circumstances not to mention one where you're flying into just a hail of bullet fire and the uh i think the other thing to think about even if they're despite the fact that they're flying low hueys like most other helicopters are loud as hell like yeah. the enemy knows exactly when they're coming not to mention the fact that this north vietnamese battalion uh, had a vantage point where they could see the helicopters coming in. Totally. Uh, and and so you're, um, there's no element of surprise. There's no tactical superiority in terms of the, you know, you're not carrying firepower that can overwhelm the enemy. So it's a really, really dangerous job. Yeah. And, and it really shows, you know, kind of the disparity between the American troops and the North Vietnamese and, <laughs> you know, we, this is something we see in Afghanistan um, to, to an extent. Uh, I, I mean, it's absolutely what the Russians faced in Afghanistan until we started arming the Afghanis. This thought that because we have a measure of technological superiority that we can basically win any battle and any war that's out there you know the north vietnamese didn't have much i mean yeah they they had machine guns they had a few mortars they didn't have i mean while they had some air support most battles like this one did not have any direct air support 
um, you know, more managed to have a butt ton of, of, of air support in this. Uh, they had close artillery support. They had all this stuff that the North Vietnamese did not have. And the North Vietnamese, simply by basically having a home field advantage and by having a sheer will, regardless of motivation, they were able to give us a run for our money. Yeah, admittedly, the uh, you know there were some segments of the North Vietnamese that had they were getting weaponry from the Russians, and you sort of had this proxy war being fought. Yeah, but here I, th- there's a, another phenomenal scene that that puts a point on what you're just mentioning, which is Moore keeps going back to that this book about the the uh, French war in the fifties. Oh yeah, yeah, in the Central Highlands. I don't know if he can. This is something I just noticed this time watching. I'm not sure whether Colonel Moore could read French, but that book was all in French. So I'm wondering if he. <laughs> <laughs> but just, he's just like, oh shit! It looked like they got like messed up. <laughs> yeah. But he, he makes this list, uh, and it's you know I don't know if this is just a nice little plot device to sort of get get out what is on his mind. But he's making a list of the reasons why the French failed, and among, on that list, overconfidence, lack of knowledge yeah. of terrain, all of these things. I mean, it's. I, it almost hits you over the head with this is exactly what we're about to, to uh, almost be defeated based on. But yeah. there is a definite sense of, of that. You see it, uh, it personified in the, I, my guess is that they're CIA folks that are in the command's uh, headquarters. I guess it's in Saigon mm-hmm. where they're discussing and, and kind of overseeing the battle. And, they talk about, you know, losing, I call losing a thousand or a boatload of draftees a bad day or a bad week. Losing yeah. a lieutenant colonel is a catastrophe. And so there is absolutely this sense that, hey, we've got these brand new shiny rifles, these new M16s, these fancy new helicopters, these new tactics. We've, we're the nation that, that defeated the Nazis and Japan. And then, uh, you know, I'll put in heavy air quotes, kicked ass in Korea. Uh, sure. Like, we know our stuff. We're we're gonna beat a bunch of farmers uh, in in some rice paddies in Vietnam, and I right. think that was that was some of the mentality that that uh, you know pervaded. Um, yeah, there was another scene where the two before <clears throat> at the the start of the movie where they're discussing setting up this air cab. You've got these two U.S. generals who are walking discussing the concept, and they talk about how the the French army got defeated. And they're like French army, like what's that? <laughs> And <laughs> this absolute sense that uh, you know, that I, I think doesn't affect Colonel Moore and his approach to things, and that's that's ultimately the difference between success and defeat. There, yeah, I, I, Moore certainly has a more um, <laughs> kind of a measure of humility about this, and 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 a touch of reality. I mean, while while he understands that, hey, we're we're going in on helicopters. We have these M16s, who, who, of course, it's funny because uh, you know the, the sergeant major won't touch an M16. He's got his he, he's got his handgun, and and that's that's what he's going to take down the enemy with. And by God, right up to and through the end of the movie, that's what he does, uh, <laughs> which is just amazing. And, and of course, there's a lot of of great visuals there, both between Moore and the sergeant major. 
while you know everyone else is is running and hiding for cover, these two guys are just standing in the middle of of the of, of a gunfight, bullets flying all around them. You know, and of course, Moore's not fighting a shot because he's you know they they they're capturing the 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 visual imagery of him being the leader, and he has to you know have his view of the battlefield and. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it, but then kind of likewise, they they have the visual of the sergeant major being this you know bulletproof guy who just stands there and he's you know planking off North Vietnamese with his handgun. Uh, I, I mean, it's a movie, so I mean, some of this stuff is a little outrageous, and I'm not knocking the 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 bravery or the heroism of 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 these guys in real life, but of course, we always know there's a Hollywood spin on this stuff too. Yeah. yeah it's, so, so likewise, there was an ability. I mean, you, you mentioned the vantage point that the that the the North Vietnamese had from their command post, and and the the commander of the North Vietnamese seemed to be a pretty smart guy, pretty astute. Um, he could read a battlefield very well, and so they kind of showed this. Um, for as much of a dichotomy, there was also a lot of similarity between this commander who's looking at battlefield maps and he has his intel coming in. They have this vantage point up on this this hill with this great position. They can see what's going on compared to Moore, who's very isolated. He's in the valley. He's in the jungle. Yet he they, they reference I don't know, two or three times in the movie and, and they kind of do it great plot-wise, where the North Vietnamese commander says, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to flank the Americans here from the West. And then they'll cut over to Moore, and, and you know he's talking to the Sergeant Major, and he's like, okay, I think they're going to flank us from the West. We need to reinforce that side. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's there's some convenient plot point there. We don't know how much of that actually happened in reality, but they certainly emphasized his ability to anticipate enemy strategy and kind of know what was going to happen on the battlefield. Yeah. And that was a great interplay. I thought that was a great plot device because it, it very quickly did away with this notion that the North Vietnamese were just, uh, you know, a bunch of disorganized farmers or whatever that had, had picked up AK 47s and decided to fight. I mean, this was a battle hardened tactically proficient army that was rapidly learning the tactics, especially in those early hours of the battle, figuring out exactly what the Americans were going to do. <clears throat> and they do it, per- I mean, within probably an hour, what, hour and a half of the first troops landing, they had managed to cut off a platoon uh, from the rest of the force. And, you know, but for effective artillery fire, probably would have wiped that entire platoon out. Um, yeah, and then very quickly you see this. I, I, that's one of the, I, in my personal opinion, the best parts of the entire movie is this dynamic, this chess game that's actively going, where Moore is desperately trying to reinforce all these areas and anticipate these attacks from the the North Vietnamese commander, and uh, it, this sort of di- dynamic shift in the battlefield. It's just a really, really great way to to get things across. Yeah. And you you kind of see the desperation of the situation where the the North Vietnamese have virtually a limitless number of soldiers that they're able to just continually throw uh, against the Americans while more is just simply being reinforced a platoon at a time. I, I mean, a, a platoon 
facing these hundreds of thousands of, of enemy soldiers is nothing. It's absolutely nothing. It's barely even a drop in the bucket, you know, but they're, they're, they're just able to hold on. And, and this kind of, this whole situation here with our entry into Vietnam has so much similarity to our entry into World War II, um, just kind of given the, the roots of our podcast here. You know, when you think about it, our entry in the World War II was in North Africa, and kind of very similarly, we had this very brazen, like, yeah, hey, you know, we, we understand that the Allies are, are getting their asses kicked, and we're going to come in, and we're going to save the day. And you had a bunch of new, untested soldiers. You had commanders who haven't fought a war since World War One. They're going into a territory that they're not familiar with. And they absolutely get routed their first time in. I mean, that's it, – it, it's just like it's it's crazy the lessons that, that we don't learn from from history. Yeah. You know? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I just I, – I find that whole thing really interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and I think that's what makes Moore such an interesting character because time and again – you you see folks that are just trapped in the the last conflict that we fought, and and occasionally you get folks like Dick Winters or Hal Moore that are <clears> forward thinking enough to to see a way around that that ends up saving lives. And one thing I wanted to touch on that I think this movie spends a lot of time on is the just the toll that this fighting takes. Um, yeah. The if you'll notice, and we talked about this a little bit throughout the Band of Brothers podcast, but I, American soldiers in this battle look a lot different than American soldiers these days in terms of the equipment worn. I, they've got totally. their uh, their helmet, uh, which at that point, I don't even think was made of Kevlar. I don't know that, that Kevlar existed at that point. No, nah, it was, it was gotta... low-grade steel at best. I mean, yeah. that's that's it. So a helmet capable of probably deflecting something, yeah. not, not stopping around. And then no other personal protective equipment. I mean, yeah, you know, no body armor, nothing. Nope, nothing like that. I mean, these days you walk in, you've got uh, a front and back Kevlar plate, a Kevlar helmet. You've got a, a optional neck protector that you can wear. You've got a groin protector. Um, you know, I deployed with ballistic underwear that, that would help, you know, deflect blasts and whatnot. I mean, you know, you fully kitted up. The average soldier can survive quite a bit. Uh, these guys could not. Um, yeah. And you see that very quickly, how, how fast the casualties mount. And one thing, given your background, Tim, that I wanted to ask you about. So casualties quickly become a problem in getting them out and, and casualty management and whatnot. And we touched on the medevac piece <clears throat> earlier, but I wanted to see if you could explain a little bit about, like, for the folks that do get wounded there, how how important it is or, uh, you know, what the, the priority is to get these guys attention for. Well, yeah, I mean, basically as, as, as men are getting wounded, they're going to try to pull them back to some measure of a casualty collection point. And at that point, they're going to do some real hasty triage, which is essentially just sorting out the wounded uh, based on the extent of their injuries. You know, someone who has a major bleed, someone who is unconscious, uh, that kind of stuff. Those are your your, your more uh, severe ones. Um, and then you kind of have this gray area in the middle, and the other end of the spectrum is what we generally call the walking wounded. And those are the, the 
people who are still able to generally uh, ambulate their for the most part, able to to function pretty well. There are no life-threatening injuries. So this is someone, you know, who got grazed or has more of a soft tissue type of a type of a wound that didn't hit any major artery or didn't blow up a bone in their body or something like that. Um, that yeah, you know what? It hurts. It it's bleeding some, but really, aside from. Um, you know, some risk of infection, which is the furthest thing from their mind at this point. Uh, you know, there there could be some longer term uh, type of, of disability that comes from it. But but generally, these folks are, are still able to, to do their thing. And we see through the evolution of this movie that those walking wounded types and even some who really aren't even able to walk, they might have a severe leg injury or something. You know, they're they're propped up against a tree and handed an M16 and said, you know, you're going to watch this this field of, of vision right here and you're going to shoot anything that moves. Uh, I mean, that that's the kind of stuff that, that you see. And so you had this. Um, I mean, there's there's still a lot of that that brotherhood um, that's in there. And so you have guys who want to stay and fight regardless of being injured because they're they want to be there for their brothers. And so those that are that are able to fight are going to, and of course, as things got really hot and and toward the end of the movie, when there again was no more LZ, and so there are no more troops coming in, and there certainly wasn't any evac out of there, they're now left with all the wounded, and you know they're putting a gun in the hands of anyone, almost you know, I mean, unless they were completely in so much pain that they couldn't do anything or they were unconscious. I mean, everyone was getting a gun put back in their hand. The other side of this is that the the care for the wounded takes up resources. And so it's not just, in, in many cases, it's not just your medics. It's also other people who are carrying uh, litters or just carrying bodies. It, you know, whether you're doing a, a soldier's drag or you know, two people, one person's going to grab the legs, the other person grabs the person under the arms and they haul them to the casualty collection point. Someone steps up and tries to assist the medic in, in bandaging or, or whatever the case may be. You know, I mean, you, you saw issues of, of uh, lack of water. You know, they're having to check canteens that they find from the dead. Their their uh, lack of ammunition, their their stripping the dead of basically any supplies possible or the severely wounded of any supplies possible lack of medical supplies all that kind of stuff so it becomes a big drain and also mentally it's also a big issue i mean you see so many of your own soldiers that are wounded dead or dying and and psychologically that has a big impact on you and and that impact can range it can range everything from despair like you know, fuck this, we're going to lose. I'm going to die too. And that makes you a less effective soldier up to rage, which can similarly make you a less effective soldier. If you're going to run head headlong into the enemy, just firing, well, you're, you're probably going to die. Uh, you know, it's, it's all, there's so much that goes into it. Um, everything from the medical side to the psychological side, the resource side, it's, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. When you mentioned the, the, drawing other healthy soldiers in to take care of the wounded. There's that heart-wrenching scene with Lieutenant Gagan, and he's 
he's pulling back with another enlisted soldier, a sergeant, who gets hit as they flee the enemy fire, and he turns around to go pick him up and bring him back behind friendly lines, and he he gets shot twice and killed. Yeah. Um, you know, leaving a, a two month old daughter behind. I I was the I hadn't watched this movie since I had a daughter, but you know, stuff like that is uh, takes a different emotional toll. Uh, you know, I think about it in different ways than I did before. Uh, sure. When I first saw this movie in, gosh, like high school. Yeah. And but you're absolutely right, and I think you uh, you may have explained this before, but we talk about that 30 minute helicopter trip. Uh, like what? Maybe you could briefly explain the the golden hour and like the challenge they face just trying to get some of these injured soldiers treated properly. Yeah, I, in situations like this, especially with major trauma, I mean, you're going to end up with an awful lot of soldiers that are just simply going to bleed out and die in that helicopter. Mm-hmm. And, and there's keep in mind there is no medical care being provided on those helicopters. It's not like yeah. you're in an ambulance. This is like you said the 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 actual official medevac choppers are circling overhead because they simply can't get access. So there's no medics uh, when when Snake and, and his other helicopters are turning from um, becoming uh, in, insertion helicopters to evac helicopters. This is hasty evac. There's no medical support on these choppers. They're just stacking bodies uh, basically up to the weight limit and getting them the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. So there's a 30 minute ride of these guys just bleeding out. And, you know, you're going to have probably some of the guys who are less injured and a little bit more with it, maybe trying to take care of some others at this point. I I mean, in, in basic, they were getting very, very little uh, training in, in uh, medical care, first aid, anything like that. That's certainly not like soldiers are now. It's, it's, you know, most soldiers now have, a pretty decent amount of medical training that they're coming out of basic with. Not to mention you're equipped, uh, you know, just Google individual first aid kit. And it's amazing. Yeah. An individual soldier, not a medic, not a doctor, but just a normal soldier carries with them. Everything from quick, quick clot type stuff to, to, um, you know, yeah, pressure bandages. Carries, yep, pressure bandages. Everybody carries a, a combat action tourniquet that can be used. Yep, one hand. Uh, you know, it's amazing that the and it all goes back. I you know, I think the the statistic is the number one killer on the battlefield is blood loss. Yeah, and if you and, and, and that's loss, oh yeah, and and that's something now that that we're seeing that we're having to adapt to domestically. Um, and kind of relating to the line of work that, that I'm in is that that's the thing that we're trying to look at with these active shooter uh, types of, of incidents and trying to reduce casualties. I mean, we're, we're basically looking at injury profiles that are very much akin to a, a, a battlefield mm-hmm. with these gunshot injuries and trying to identify what we can do to uh, to, to reduce the loss of life. And it's, and it's very challenging. And, and there's a, there's actually a lot that's being learned from the military. Domestically tourniquets were like a no, no for years. I mean, when I first started as, as, as an EMT, they're like, no, we don't use tourniquets. Mm-hmm. Every EMT now is, is, is trained and equipped for the use of tourniquets. Yeah. 
yeah. because before it was like, oh, no, well, you know, you put a tourniquet on, someone's going to lose their leg with no thought of. But if you don't, they may lose their life. I, I would yeah. much rather lose a leg than lose my life. And and, yeah. and, and I, I'm not disparaging the challenges of, of, of a lost limb in this. But yeah, so we're, we're learning a lot of stuff from that. And I think I we touched on that a little bit from from Black Hawk Down uh, with some of the the combat medicine lessons that were learned um, from that whole situation in the Battle of Mogadishu that not only was did did the military go through a basically a, a, another combat medical transformation it's it's basically the most modern military combat medical transformation that that we've seen to address you know long term um sustainment of things and, and training and equipping the average soldier to to take care of these things but now we're we're, we're also seeing some some bleed through pardon the fun pardon the pun um it, into domestic care as well so you know non-battlefield types of things and it's it's uh yeah it's it's real interesting but it is absolutely critical because yeah most of these a good number of these guys who were in the helicopter on their way back to definitive medical care just died and blood and bled out yeah they had no chance and you you touched on this to to segue at the beginning this um we this is one of the unusual war movies where the focus just isn't just on the battlefield action you get a fair bit of attention placed on the community back home Mm -hmm. at fort benning i I, to me i'm trying to come up with a movie as i sit here that has had that sort of focus or that attention and i can't think of one off the top of my head and i think this movie does a, a pretty good job of conveying first of all before they ever go to battle what you know, an army community looks like, I mean, you know, this, um, nowadays you're going to have both male and female spouses, but at the time or for the time, I thought it did a pretty good job of illustrating like, you know, this sort of thing that that's what it looks like, right? You get new folks that come into a base. You've got, uh, spouses who have been there for a little while Mm -hmm. and it's a very communal system where, the, that that exchange of tips in terms of hey don't use the base laundry because it's all gunked up because of the swamp missions to yeah. hey you can you can <clears throat> shop here all of those things are like happen in real life I thought it did a really good job of of showing that and there are spouses clubs that exist to this day totally that are for those those purposes um, not to mention the fact that I, I think if you you think about it if you're moving every two years or three years, if you're totally uprooting your family and going someplace new, you're plopping down, potentially not knowing anyone. And so these, these uh, spouses clubs, these family organizations exist to integrate the community. So you don't feel this isolation that, that would make that aspect of military life even tougher. And talking about casualties, they, they send home, just a really emotionally weighty uh, few scenes here where the army as in real life is at, at this point in time in the war is not prepared with casualty notification teams. No. Uh, you know, the, the sort of stuff we saw in saving private Ryan, where you've got an officer and a chaplain or some religious person, not, not ready to go. They were not anticipating yeah. this sort of push. And so it's yeah. left after the Korean staff. war that all went away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, that infrastructure just, just uh, atrophies 
And so who's delivering these telegrams but a, a damned cab driver? And Colonel Moore's wife realizes what's happening and, and you know, poignantly takes up the job on her own along with uh, Gagan's wife. And man, if that doesn't like hit you right in the, you know, emotions, I don't know what will just watching them, this sort of montage where they're delivering these notices. Yeah. To folks. And it's not like, you know, in, in Saving Private Ryan, you see it as this like heartfelt letter that's written and whatnot. I mean, these are damn telegrams. Yeah. You know, yeah. There's, there's defense regrets to inform you. Bam. Yeah. Of Western Union. And, yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 very cold. It's very impersonal. There's there's no, you know, I mean, now that the, the the military leans very far forward with support networks for this kind of stuff, and you know, there's no indication in this film uh, from you know delivery to any other type of like crisis counseling that like none of this stuff existed. Um, no. So it's no. it's it's nuts. No, and that goes to the larger theme of just not being prepared for for you know some of the second and third order effects of this this scale of conflict. Yeah, and to the wounded, I, you see it on the back end. I mean, these days there is there's still a lot of work to be done to support uh, folks who are wounded in action after they're out of service. But you know, they're talking. There's a uh, I think some narration that's done by Galloway about the the poor saps who are coming back from Vietnam wounded, sometimes very seriously. And you see that scene where the wounded soldier he's got his head all bandaged and an mm-hmm. eye covered up. He's coming back to the airport and there's nobody. There's nobody waiting for him. Nobody's yeah. shaking his hand. Everybody's pretty much ignoring him. And I, you know that sort of thing was very sadly prevalent. Uh, you know, society's done a complete 180. <clears throat> oh yeah the intervening years but i mean it's just it's heartbreaking and and they're going back into a system you, you, the the va system wasn't what it was now you know you can talk all the all you want about the faults that the va system has now but i mean talk, warp back in time to, yeah. to 65 66 and imagine coming home and trying to navigate and get services for your uh the injuries you sustained in combat as a, a soldier back then or a former soldier. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. Wholly inadequate. And yeah, yeah. even like you said, you know, the, the, the reception of soldiers coming back, even, you know, small commercial airports now have USO uh, offices in them. And you see soldiers coming back in who are greeted by, even if they're being greeted by, by strangers, they're still being greeted yeah. and they're being welcomed back to, welcomed back warmly and it's a great thing i mean for the amount that i travel i see all the time in airports and and it's it's a wonderful thing it's i think it's just fantastic that they are that that amount of support and and we can still do better there's still a lot of things that we can do better you know you talk about the va and some other stuff there's a lot of things that that we can do better for our soldiers and airmen and sailors and marines but we have come leaps and bounds from the things we've seen in World War Two and, and and in Vietnam from this movie and and um, and a lot of that other stuff. So, yeah. yeah. To go back because we haven't touched on sort of the heat of the battle yet. So they they survive that first day. 
And you mentioned at the very beginning some of the night shots, and you see them. They don't get a respite. They were crazy. The night shots, like, your heart just fucking starts pounding because you're like, oh, shit, someone's out there. No, it's not like the North Vietnamese were like, okay, well, we'll see you bright and early tomorrow morning. Thanks, guys. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, their colonel was like, nope, this is the time to to hit them. We know their tactics. We we know Mm -hmm. where they are, and we know their weaknesses. Uh, Let's overwhelm them before they're ready. Yeah. And damn, if I didn't, you know, you the, the cutoff platoon, certain savage orders, illumination fired from landing zone Falcon from the artillery there. Mm-hmm. And the illum round pops off and you just see the North Vietnamese right up on top of him. And he has to frantically call in the artillery. Yeah. Damn, if that didn't jump my blood pressure by a, <laughs> like a couple dozen points. It just absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. I, yeah, I mean, and, and that's the kind of stuff that just really adds even even more attention to this whole kind of thing. And, and it, so then in the middle of it, uh, between you, you had quoted before that, uh, you know, some of the, some of the folks back at HQ didn't want to lose a lieutenant colonel. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're radioing back uh, to, to more and saying, hey, we, we want you you know, you, you got to hitch a ride back with one of these helicopters and come back to HQ for quote debriefing. <laughs> and, and you know, more. I mean, he was too much of a gentleman to to say these words, but it was basically fuck that. Yeah, he was not going to leave his men. I mean, he and, and that was his commitment to his men in the beginning. I will be the first person to set boots on the ground and the last person to 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 get it back into the helicopter. And yeah. he was not going to abandon his men in the middle of this battle. He knew chances were that, you know, they would be completely eliminated in this battle, and he was willing to stick it out with them. Um, he wasn't going anywhere. So General, General Westmoreland himself actually gives him a second order to, to pull out, and he <laughs> grabs the radio and says, no, <laughs> again, in uh, a little bit nicer terms, but, like, respectfully, sir, fuck off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's you know, hey, that's that's fine. You you can you can deal with the court martial afterwards. That's that's why you, you know you have a job, Tom. But uh, you know, I, a situation like that, no, I, a, yeah. a, a good leader is simply not going to leave his men in a situation like that. That's um, that's that's when, crazy. So you see, by day two, the North Vietnamese have evolved their tactics, and they recognize the effectiveness of U.S. artillery and close air support. Um, and they shift their strategy to, to, as the colonel says, grab them by the belt buckle, that we're going to get inside this protective umbrella and battle them, you know, person to person. So they make that daylight attack, and by mid-morning, late morning, they are inside U.S. lines. I mean, there's no safe distance or anything like that. That one North Vietnamese soldier you see that's got the little diary to his girlfriend or wife yep. he fixes bayonets and almost runs more through he's like more's on the radio and he's like what's the situation he turns around just shoots him in the head right at the last second and he's like you know it's getting a little hairy down here um but things are getting progressively worse for uh for u.s forces casualties are stacking their casualty collection point is literally the entire landing i mean it's like you can't step over um, a square foot of ground around their their sort of hasty command post 
without tripping over a body or, or a equipment. And Sergeant Major Plumley makes the comment before they deployed that, or no, at the at the actual firebase that if when the time comes or if the time comes that he needs an M16, they'll be lying about, and you get that shot of just a pile of M16s and canteens, yeah, and, and whatnot. <clears throat> yep. And so then Colonel Moore is faced with a pretty tough decision. His his uh, uh, RTO is is radioing in frantic reports from his other platoons and companies that are reporting that uh, things have gotten very, very bad. And how many radio operators, by the way, in this movie got killed? I mean, holy shit. How many radio operators got like every time, every time the, the, the scene, the, the camera cut to a radio operator, it's like, dude, you're dead. (laughs) <laughs> like it became predictable. It was almost like a, a a very unfortunate running joke in this movie that you know. Magnet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everyone. Well, and this is one of like the the single best scenes in the movie, in my opinion. But he, the the RTO is like, what are we gonna do, sir? And he sort of stands up and marches to one spot and kind of surveys the battlefield, marches to another spot, surveys the battlefield. RTO is right behind him, and he declares Broken Arrow. Yep. Broken Arrow means something very different these days, and if you've seen yes. <laughs> the John Travolta movie, then you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's very, it's very different thing. It's like a, like a lost, like a <laughs> lost nuclear nuke. incident now. Yeah. But um, maybe we'll do Broken Arrow one day. I don't know. Not quite a war movie, but anyway. Yeah. But at the also, time, also not quite a good movie either, but <laughs> but at the time it uh it signaled that a u.s unit was in danger of being completely overrun and so and again this is another bit of exposition that the the movie does very well helping the audience understand things but uh they convey that it calls in all available air support uh to, to help defend the unit and then i i distinctly remember the first time i i saw this movie and watching as the F4 Phantoms and the um, the Intruders and the Sky Raider, which is like still one of my favorite aircraft of all time, all just divert and yeah. uh, just pound the enemy. And I think at one point, I, I can't remember who says it, but they're like, you know, we've got aircraft stacked up all the way to some ridiculous altitude, just waiting to for their turn to to drop ordnance. Yeah. And so you see this desperate attempt to try to save uh, the the cavalry squadron there. And of course, some of it inevitably came a little too close. Uh, You had some American soldiers who uh, were impacted by some of the napalm, which was also pretty grueling. You know, I mean, heartbreaking stuff. Again, really, really good camera work uh, when it came down to it. But just, um, you know, terrible to see. Yeah, and actually that was was another one where they just like, punched you right in the feels because that was the the one soldier that gets just toasted really badly jimmy nakiyama i think was his yeah. name there there was that quick scene with him and galloway taking cover and he's like so excited he's like i've got a baby born being born today yeah and they're like oh cool and then uh, you know he's one of the guys that gets hit badly so um, basically again, the lesson learned here is if your character in a movie is gonna have that kind of like nice happy thing happened in their life you know inevitably you're fucked i mean it's and especially if if you have that nice happy thing and then you get handed a radio 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. Wait, wait, wait. I, I want to I volunteer for another job. Give, give me anything else. <laughs> yeah. I'll dig latrines over here. I'll dig <laughs> um, I think we do have to talk a little bit about non-combatants. Yeah. Be, because, um, you know, it, Galloway was kind of became one of the central characters about halfway through this movie. Uh, it was we were well into the second act when when, when Galloway came in, and and so he's a war correspondent, and and it was you know it was kind of interesting how he was treated. I mean, certainly the sergeant major was uh, was kind of looking down on him, like son, I don't know what the hell you're doing here, but you better keep your head down, uh, and and otherwise I have no use for you. <laughs> You know, and 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 even more at one one point told him, I cannot guarantee your safety. Yeah. But Galloway, you know, they, he kind of went into his family history. You know, I've had people, uh, you know, family members. I think he mentioned going back to the Civil War who have fought for for our country. And while I'm not fighting for my country, I still think that you know this is an important job and making sure that people know what's going on and and all that and you kind of saw this, it was a very interesting, but short journey for him that, that he took in this, um, guy with Tom, what, what, any particular thoughts you, you have on it's, it, it's kind of unfortunate because his bit in the movie was short, even though he was such an important character. I was a little disappointed that this is the same actor that played private Jackson. If you guys remember from saving private Ryan, probably one of the, yeah, most the sniper, badass. Yeah, character. Yeah, the sniper. I remember seeing it. I was like, "Oh hell yeah, he's a sniper. He's coming in." And then he's just got a camera. Yeah, they gave him a thirty-five millimeter, man. That's what he's got, (laughs) and it has nothing to do with bullet size. (laughs) That that telescopic lens is not going to go on top of a rifle, unfortunately. No, no, no. I thought it was a really interesting dynamic because it brought out a different side of Colonel Moore during the battle. I mean, he straight up tells him, "Like, I hope you survive this." (laughs) Like. There's no special treatment. You get uh, folks, war correspondents go back. I mean, as far as, you know, news was a thing, right? Yeah. There have always been, uh, there's always been individuals or entities, companies that have been interested in in covering uh, combat and battle. And there are aspects, you can be a... uh, combat camera would be the the short term for it but that's an actual job in the military i mean you can be a a correspondent of sorts but it's also not unusual to have media embedded with units now getting a hitching a ride into an active combat zone like this one you know i don't know that you would see that these days as much as you might see somebody quickly find themselves in a combat situation if thing if you know stuff deteriorates yeah um what was it our efforts. made clear in the movie if he was like an independent journalist or he was like PAO or or was there anything? I don't know that I they think, said. No, they didn't make it clear. I don't think he's a <clears throat> in the movie. He was not officially affiliated with uh, the the army or anything okay. like that. Um, <clears throat> he was just a correspondent. Yeah, uh, and it's funny because he's like his colleagues arrive at the very end of the battle. And there's that funny scene where the artillery goes off and they're all ducking and hitting the dirt. Yeah. And he's like, that's that's friendly fire. Like, you pussies, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Which was him when he first showed up on the ground. 
Exactly. Like any fire that's going on, he's like, "Oh shit, what was that?" You know, yeah. like, <laughs> that great scene where Sergeant Ma- he's like in the dirt, and Sergeant Major Plumley is standing there. He's like, "You can't take any pictures from down there." <laughs> <laughs> oh god! But yeah, I, but it's it kind of illustrates the uh, the real issue here because Colonel Moore's job there, as well as all the other U.S. soldiers, is to defeat the enemy. Yeah, I they. they not to protect the journalist. Yeah, if 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 it doesn't fit within their mission, I mean, obviously they're going to offer him some protection, right? But sure, they're not going to cut a couple soldiers to be his personal security detail. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, and there's sort of this constant pull of, in terms of the desire to accommodate media versus some of the security risks that can go along with it, because obviously you don't want somebody like this to get killed um, while they're with your unit and create problems of its own kind. But at the same time, I mean, the realities are what they are. Right. And there's, I I absolutely love the scene where I think it's Plumlee that hands him an M16 and he's like, I'm not a, I'm not a combatant. And he's like, there are, there's no such thing as non-combatants here. And then he quickly finds himself engaging the enemy as they're about to get overrun. Yeah. Um, and then goes so I, back to his camera. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, and I think it goes into that montage where you see some still images. I don't yeah. know if those were still like kind of faked to, to look like actual images from the battle or if those were actual images. I think it was the former, but um, I thought his perspective in there as well as the bond that he quickly forms with Moore uh, was a pretty valuable piece of the movie. And clearly the two formed a pretty deep bond because that they wrote they a book together. Book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and really what it comes down to, it's like probably either one of them could have written this book well on their own, but they combined their perspectives to write the book. And, and admittedly, I, I have not read the book. I don't know if, if you have Tom. No. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it seems like a great story and probably something I should add to my to my own personal library. Um, you know, it, it's it's uh, it, yeah, I, I think certainly just from their two different perspectives of someone who's a professional soldier and someone who's a professional journalist looking at the same thing through through quite literally different lenses. So. Yeah. So the the aftermath of uh, of this skirmish uh, resulted in uh, seventy nine KIA's on on the U.S. side, one hundred and twenty one wounded, and then an estimated uh, twelve hundred and fifteen of North Vietnamese killed um, out of their again estimated four thousand battalion strength uh, that they we had were, there. <clears throat> the statistic I think was we were killing at a. 10 to 1 ratio and even that number i think differs from what's at the end of the film i think the end of the film mentions 1800 but it's not as if we're out there counting individual bodies and in fact KIA enemy kia numbers became an issue as the war would go on because we mm-hmm. we'd report staggering enemy losses and and um maybe inaccurately reported u.s losses and yeah. the question was always like well you know, who can we trust here? Yeah. But, uh, and that's unfortunately kind of the legacy of the Vietnam war is that like, we couldn't trust the reporting that was coming out on it from our own government. It was, and it was really just the, 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 our, our, our government trying to backpedal and cover themselves 
in the best way they possibly could in a war that, regardless of philosophically if we should or shouldn't have been in it, we were getting our asses handed to us. I, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, and and this, I mean, I, you know, you can <clears throat> you can look right at the uh, the Vietnamese colonel's statement about it. He's like, you know, the Americans will call this a victory, like a tactical mm-hmm. victory or whatever. Sure. But, you know, we we've learned a tremendous amount here. And days later at LZ Albany, uh, you had just an absolute catastrophe happen. Uh, this the second phase of this operation, and uh, I think they had a hundred and over 150 KIA. I mean, I, they they got ambushed at the LZ, um, and had a lot different outcome here than here. And so, uh, this, this is a sophisticated enemy, despite what you know, biases might have you think that uh, continually adapted throughout the war to exploit our weaknesses and our overconfidence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some military lingo stuff, Tom. Um, so you, you had mentioned Broken Arrow. Uh, what, what other kind of things came out of this movie that we might want to define a little bit? As they're going in, Nap of the Earth is mentioned by Snake Shit. He says they're, they're, they're going to drop to Nap of the Earth. And so that's an actual term that, that refers to like a really low altitude uh, flight course. The purpose of it is to, de- to avoid attack- uh, detection in like a, a high threat type environment. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing there is you're using the geography as, as cover. And that's exactly what you see them do. They're flying through valleys uh, as opposed to flying over them. You know, theoretically, it's going to take you longer to get to your destination that way. Um, But you've got some some you're you're using the terrain as an advantage there. And if you've ever I made this point earlier, but if you've ever been at an air show or been around one of these Hueys, even a Blackhawk, you can hear a Blackhawk from a long way. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I, that's just something that they have to deal with mm-hmm. uh, naturally. And so that, that's why they, they take that sort of high risk maneuver. Uh, white phosphorus is another one. That's like a, another pretty brutal scene here where a, a Vietnamese soldier pops off a white phosphorus grenade. Um, these things are typically used. It, it's like a, a chemical grenade that's made from, from phosphorus, obviously uh, it, it's used in incendiary munitions, uh, like tracers, smoke, all sorts of different military applications. Mm-hmm. And actually back in, uh, as far as World War II, it was used as, it was actually called Willie Pete was the slang for it because WP, white phosphorus. Yep. Um, and that kind of wove its way into military jargon. But it's an incendiary weapon. It self-ignites and it, it burns extremely hot. Uh, it can burn through clothing, uh, skin, as you see in the movie. That, that there's that awful scene where that that soldier gets hit with it, and he literally has to have his skin cut off. Um, and so, in any event, that's if you've ever heard of Willie Peter, a white phosphorus grenade. That's that's what you're seeing there. Yeah, and the the burns that come from white phosphorus. I mean, this is an immediate third degree burn. There's there's no. Like there, there's, there's pretty much no in between on this. I mean, the, the, that's just why, that's why it's used. The exposure is just so insanely, uh, generally deadly. And I, my, you know, domestically, my encounter 
has not been with white phosphorus, but with uh, with magnesium, which is usually used in in, uh, in highway flares. And you think, oh, okay, highway flares, not not a big deal. I've I've had responders like walking down the road to position lit highway flares um, and actually have the shit drip onto them. Um, yeah. And they weren't wearing the proper protective clothing, you know, either firefighters who weren't properly geared up, uh, or non-firefighters, um, who were handling these things. And, uh, yeah, I, I had someone who the stuff dripped on, on his leg and, uh, I, that's, that's an immediate third degree burn. It's it, it, it freaking insanely painful. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine someone being covered in this stuff. That's just, that's, mm-hmm. it's non-survivable, you know? Yeah. So the last one, um, Gary Owen is something you hear the, the soldiers from seventh cab yell. Uh, it's actually the, the motto of that, of seventh cab. So seventh cab was formed way back in 1866, which is the Custer connection there that Mel Gibson makes. They weren't uh, using helicopters then, by the way. Just FYI. They tried to, to, you know, this little known history fact, right? They tried <laughs> to, to put wooden slats onto a horse and <laughs> yeah. after yeah. several horses died falling from heights, they mm-hmm. gave that up and just decided to ride them. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Totally accurate military history. Totally. Um, no. So Gary Owen is not a person. Well, it is. Was. It, but, G- Gary Owen well, is actually it, a comedian. That, well, that's true. And <laughs> you hear it and you're like, oh, okay. Like if a military unit has, is saying like a name, obviously they are celebrating this comedian and his heroic <laughs> yeah, somebody. Yeah. But it's actually an Irish song. Yes. So Gary Owen's an Irish song. It became the uh, the division's like marching tune. Yep. And so that's that's what they're referencing there. So not everything, not every military uh motto or something like that relates directly to some badassery or whatever sometimes it's a jaunty tune yeah the one aftermath you you mentioned the casualties but i did on the flip side of things there were a lot of awards uh military awards that came out of this um colonel moore earned the the uh distinguished service cross for his actions uh major crandall and captain freeman so i Kevin Freeman, I think, was too tall. They both got medals of honor, respectively. They weren't awarded until the 2000s, but they got uh, medals of honor for their respective actions in, in flying repeated missions into the hot LZ. It was also one of the platoon leaders, Second Lieutenant Marm, who I don't know that we see in any real capacity there, but he also got uh, a medal of honor for his actions there. Mm-hmm. Um, number of other silver stars, bronze stars. Um, so a lot of, a lot of citations out of this first big battle. Yeah. Uh, yeah, quite, quite a bit that came out of this. So a, a few more kind of behind the scenes stuff here, uh, in, in, in terms of, of life and cinema and, and, and how they collide. Uh, obviously as we kind of always mentioned, there's always some, uh, uh, you know, Hollywood, latitude taken with these things uh, even when they're when they're true stories so the film was not entirely uh, uh, adapted from the book directly or from history um apparently historically there was actually even no final heroic charge that that Moore took after the um after the broken arrow um 
and, and, and the North Vietnamese forces were certainly not completely routed uh, as, as they were like that. Basically, the uh, the the aerosol allowed some measure of a respite and the American forces were evacuated during that respite uh, in, in, in the battle. And, and that's pretty much that that's how things happen. Much, much less uh, heroic than what was portrayed in, in the film itself. Interesting bit here that uh, Kenny Thomas, uh, who was one of the military advisors on the film, uh, actually fought with the 75th Ranger in the Battle of Mogadishu. So that's kind of a cool throwback to our last episode. Uh, And sadly, uh, Lieutenant General Moore died on February 10th, 2017. So um, just about two years ago, uh, he he had left us and, and, and leaves a heck of a great story here for us. I, I, I think that, you know, it, it's a, it, it's a pretty solid movie. Um, again, you know, some, some Hollywood is Hollywoodization is the word I'm kind of going for. Is that a, is that a word, Tom? I'll allow it. I, I, I think in pretty much every episode I come up with a word somewhere, but uh, <laughs> That's uh yeah that's that's that Tom I, anything anything else you want to add to this I think my final thought would be this movie hit me more emotionally this time around than what I remember in the past I remember watching it I distinctly remember going to the theater and seeing this that that stretch of time like 01 to 02 it seemed like what you have you had Black Hawk down obviously you had this Behind Enemy Lines came out some uh, the Owen Owen Wilson movie where he's yeah. an F eighteen pilot came uh, out around the same Gladiator time. Gladiator was around. No, Gladiator was back in like two thousand. This was two thousand two. Yeah, um, but you still you had like a lot of high octane stuff. And at the time, I remember watching it, and it was just like a a cool war movie for me. Like, yeah, uh, oh, this is badass. Like, and blah blah blah. But uh, this time around, it it just. Again, as did Black Black Hawk Down to a certain extent. Certainly, Saving Pri- or Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers. But it, you just have a different perspective. Even if you've never served in the military, I think you watch a movie like this as a middle schooler, high schooler, just like a young young guy, young girl, and then you watch it again once you've gotten older. You've got uh, you know a family or, or just different yeah. stakes in life. Yeah, and stuff just hits you differently. I, you you don't have to have worn the uniform a day in your life to have a an impact like that yeah um yeah i mean when 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 you're younger watching something like this is is little more than watching you know a rambo movie with a viable plot yeah but yeah when you get older you you really realize the value of these things and especially when they're uh based on true stories um you really get to recognize and and respect uh the 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 stakes and the circumstances and, and all that so what are we doing next, Tim? What are we doing next? We talked about it. You said I think your vote was Hurt Locker. Oh yeah, yeah, we'll Hurt go, Locker. We'll go forward into forward in time again. We're just jumping all over the historical timeline here. Yeah, yeah. I, th- there's there's a lot of uh, th- there's a lot of really good films that are available to us, and and you know we're going to kind of continue jumping through through different eras of 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 war, if you will. You know, so we're, we're certainly going to find ourselves back in World War II at some point because there's still a lot of great movies there, and 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 uh, then back up through Vietnam, 
present day, all that stuff. So yeah, Hurt Hurt Locker, uh, pretty good movie. So be sure to check that out before um, our next episode drops. So with that, folks, we know that uh, you know, not we know, well, we know, but we want to make sure that you know, that we appreciate your feedback uh, that you might have for us on the shows that we do. And uh, there's a bunch of different ways that you can do that. One way is by email. You can shoot us an email, uh, dispatches at randomchatter.com. And both Tom and I will receive that and we will dutifully answer to you. And maybe even like read your email on an episode. If it was good. Yeah. Like if you're a jerk, we're probably not going to read it. But, you know, you send us something nice and thoughtful and yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll read it. I'll put it this way. If you're a jerk to Tim, I'll read it. <laughs> if you're a All jerk right. to me, no, there's no chance. But you can interact with us online, and I encourage you to do so. You, Twitter is an easy place to find all of us. There's at Random Chatter, uh, which is the, the mm-hmm. unified handle. Tim, where can they find you? Uh, at Qui-Gon Tim. That's Tim with two M's. And you can find me with the very creatively named handle, at Thomas L. Harper. Boring. And I know. It's, it's, like, <laughs> it's like when I go back and look at the e- some of the email addresses or, uh, that, that I created as like a middle schooler or a high school. I'm just like, ah. you've still got accounts tied to some of those things. Oh, yeah. Customer support. Like, and, uh, and sir, what is your, uh, <clears throat> your, your Xfinity account email? Uh, well, that would be Darth Vader rules. Uh, <laughs> number one. At gmail.com. Is that Darth with a D? Yeah. <laughs> or if you really want to go back, it's at AOL.com. Yeah. Uh, I'm amazed that uh, like AOL accounts are still active. <laughs> you can find all of the Random Chatter shows housed on, at randomchatter.com. Very well organized, conveniently laid out. Uh, and if you like the stuff that we do here on this show and elsewhere on the network, we certainly appreciate your support. You can do so in a variety of ways. Uh, one way is to leave us reviews. Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever it is that you happen to get your podcast from. Um, click on all the stars and uh, please take a moment to write in a, at least a sentence or two on, on why you like us. That just simply helps draw people to us. It bumps us up in search results. And, uh, and we greatly appreciate that. Uh, also, friends, colleagues, family members, uh, anyone who you know who is interested in the topics that we discuss, please send them in our direction uh, and you know just kind of help share our random blabberings with other people. Uh, you can also support us financially, which um, which is something else that, that we appreciate. We are we have a number of podcasts, like fifteen podcasts or so across the network, and we're doing different things. We are an an, an actual organization that functions. We have expenses uh, associated with us as an organization. We have data storage fees, and we have all sorts of other technology things uh, and fees that we have to pay for, so we can produce what we do and get it distributed out to folks. Uh, you can contribute by way of Patreon. Head over to randomchatter.com slash Patreon. We'll give you all the details there. And you can also join us in Discord. Uh, if you go to randomchatter.com slash Discord, uh, you can join it up with us there. Uh, that is basically an online discussion forum. There are uh, different, basically, chat rooms for all of our shows and a lot of other topics. Um, you can get into our main lobby and our show channels for free. 
or if you are a Patreon donor, you get access to everything in Discord. Um, and uh, that's that. So, Tom, now on to your very exciting part. Oh, man. Major is, Thomas Harper, you, Esquire. look forward to this for the whole hour plus that we talk, I, you know, I don't know what you're living for. <laughs> it's the disclaimer time. At this point, we're just talking to ourselves because no one is listening. Yeah. <laughs> but if any lawyers from uh, the, the, I don't even know who, what is it, uh, the the movie company that made. Couldn't tell you. We were soldiers. They're probably still listening intently, but for their purposes, Dispatches from the Front is not endorsed by anyone affiliated with the films we discuss and is intended for entertainment purposes only. Paramount Dispatch Pictures. Lawyers. All names associated with and references to the films we discuss are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and copyright holders. Random Chatter Media and Dispatches from the Front are not affiliated with those trademark or copyright holders. All content of Dispatches from the Front is the intellectual property of Random Chatter Media, unless otherwise indicated. Take that! <laughs> and there it is, folks. Thanks for joining us, and we will catch you uh, on the next episode, which... Uh, is her locker. Take care.